So, this may come as a surprise for some of you. We are in Isaiah. Uh, probably come as a surprise for none of you, actually. Um, so, we got down through uh, parts of uh, chapter 56 last week, and uh, going to pick up uh, there today and go through uh, as much of uh, 57 as we can as we can get to. Mostly made. There, there we go. Okay, got everybody in the in the view today. So um, over the last uh, over the last several chapters, we've heard a lot about um, kind of the good what you might think of the good parts of God. You know, God is always faithful, and there's going to be a future for us in uh, a new and a better and a perfect place. And we heard about the uh, the servant uh, through whom we can access those uh, promises and. Uh, as we saw before, and as we'll see again today, uh, the tone kind of shifts back again to to talk about what's not right and what needs to be right, and those frazzling idols again. <laughs> and so uh, that's where we uh, that's where we find uh, ourselves today. Um, but before um, before uh, Isaiah talks to uh, the group, he has a special word to the leaders. Um, the spiritual leaders of uh, the people. And he says in verse 9, All you beasts of the field, all you beasts in the forest, come to eat. Basically what he's saying is, if I was to round up all of the political and spiritual advisors and put them in a room, and just let the dogs out. That's what that means. Apparently they did. <laughs> Go sick them. That's basically what those nice little words there. You beasts of the field, you beasts in the forest, come to eat. Come to eat. Verse 10. His watchmen are blind. All of them know nothing. All of them are dumb dogs unable to bark. Dreamers lying down who love to slumber. And the dogs are greedy. They are not satisfied. And they are shepherds who have no understanding. They have all turned to their own way. Each one to his unjust gain to the last one. Come, they say, let us get wine and let us drink heavily of strong drink. And tomorrow will be like today, only better. Only more so. The most famous psalm is what? Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. In the New Testament, Jesus talks about it. We talk about Jesus being the good shepherd. And what's the essence of a shepherd? Out there, looking after dumb animals, that would be us, fighting off all the things that would want to come to attack at his own personal risk, putting himself out there for his flock, looking after them, 
Every shepherd was watching all the time, and when the shepherd wasn't watching, every shepherd had a dog. And if something came up, at least the dog would bark and wake up the shepherd. And here we have greedy, drunk shepherds, and they don't even have a dog that's going to bark. Things are not, not good. Things are not good there in the shepherd business. Have you guys seen the video of the shepherd pulling the sheep out of the hole? It was like on Facebook, Merritt was showing me. Stupid sheep, it just crawled down in a hole. Shepherd comes up, all you can see is two legs, and out comes this huge sheep, just an idiot sheep. Um, we, we need a shepherd who can help us, right? As I was writing my thoughts about these verses, I said, there's a huge responsibility upon spiritual leaders. They are to be like good shepherds, putting the flock's interests ahead of their own. Unlike these leaders who are only interested in their own enjoyment. Our pastor and his family need our prayers of support so that there is strength against temptation and that there is an ongoing and vital, vital relationship with the ultimate good shepherd so as to be a conduit for the leadership of the church and, the, and to be a faithful messenger to both the saved and the lost. Chapter 57. A little observation on the status quo. Isaiah says, The righteous man perishes, and no man takes it to heart, and devout men are taken away while no one understands. For the righteous man is taken away from evil. He enters into peace. They rest in their beds, each one who walked in his upright way. One commentator said, the society then was so bad that the righteous people in Israel had to die in order to find peace. Observing the evil all around apparently frustrated them. They could do nothing to turn the nation back to the Lord. The only way the righteous could be spared from such frustration was to die. Wow. Pretty, uh, pretty bad. Pretty bad. I'll jump ahead and keep this in mind to the last verse in the chapter, verse 21. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. So we have this concept of peace bracketing this whole chapter. How do you find peace? What disrupted the peace? Where does peace come from? Who gets peace? Who doesn't get peace? Just kind of let that percolate a little bit. As I was thinking about these few verses, I said, does it sometimes feel a bit lonely to be a Christian? To the degree that our society loses the residual common grace that had been woven into the fabric of our society, we're going to feel stranger and stranger. One of the benefits of assembling together is so that we can affirm the truth of who Jesus is and what the Bible says, but it's also a time when we can develop some unity of thought about our modern society and when and where it departs from God's ideals for living. 
This is the opposite of what happens in the community and online and in our government, right? If you're popular, which in America generally means that you're in the entertainment business, if you're influential, which in America pretty much means that you're in the entertainment business, if you're looked upon to have wise opinions, which of course means that you're in the entertainment business, then you can have great sway over the popular opinion of the day. Uh, we're the beneficiary of all the political commercials with our friends up in Charlotte, right? Not many political commercials in South Carolina. I think they think we're a lost cause, but, but they're really fighting it out over, over North Carolina and this whole HB2 thing and whose bathrooms are whose and uh, all that sort of thing. Uh, but the opinion of the day, you just follow the money, right? If the ACC and the NCAA thought they could make more money by keeping all those tournaments in North Carolina, I guarantee you they'd still be in North Carolina. But the winds shifted just enough that they thought it would hurt their bottom line less if they moved away, so they did. just kind of tells you we're not going to find a true picture of the world in that arena. But one of the benefits of coming together is that we can talk about those things and at least have a common framework. From verse 3 down to verse 10 is a very strong, provocative, disturbing picture of just how far gone the people were in their devotion to idols. Depravity, debauchery, everything bad you're going to see here. And I want you to follow along. You know how you can follow along when someone's reading a different translation? But you can kind of make it out, right? I want you to follow along as I read this passage from the message paraphrase, because I think he captures the nastiness, the coarseness, the badness, really well, because there's going to be some things that I read that sound very offensive. They don't sound like the kind of things you'd read in church. I think that's how Isaiah would have intended it. It wasn't supposed to be good. So verse 3. But you, children of a witch, come here. Sons of a slut, daughters of a whore, what business do you have taunting, sneering, and sticking out your tongue? Do you have any idea what wretches you've turned out to be? A race of rebels, a generation of liars. You satisfy your lust any place you find some shade, and fornicate at whim. You kill your children at any convenient spot. Any cave or crevice will do. You take stones from the creek and set up your sex and religion shrines. 
You've chosen your fate. Your worship will be your doom. You've climbed a high mountain to practice your foul sex and death religion. Behind closed doors, you assemble your precious gods and goddesses. Deserting me, you've gone all out, stripped down, and made your bed your place of worship. You've climbed into bed with the sacred whores and loved every minute of it, adoring every curve of their naked bodies. You anoint your king god with ointments and lavish perfumes on yourselves. You send scouts to search out the latest in religion and send them all the way to hell and back. You wear yourselves out trying the new and the different and never see what a waste it all is. You've always found strength for the latest fad and never got tired of trying new religions. Sounds pretty bad, doesn't it? It's a paraphrase, but I think it makes the point that things were, things were not good. Bear in mind, this is the same situation that was going on that first took down the northern kingdom, right? The Syrians came in, wiped out the northern kingdom. Why? Because of this. Of course, all of this is in that time warp of Isaiah. This was going on in the southern kingdom. So the Babylonians came, took that. We talked about a remnant that's going to have the opportunity to go back to the promised land, reestablish that, but... What about the people that weren't in the remnant? The rest. And that's that's all of this. The people Isaiah is speaking to had totally immersed themselves in all of the sinful activities of the pagan religion. It's interesting to think, what in the world happened... And how quickly did it happen that they made the switch from God so fast and they went so far to the basis of sins and evil? From the perspective of, of the average historical timeline, you see those timelines, I've always been fascinated by those timelines. I remember when Merritt was homeschooling, there was like a timeline of the world that would reach practically the whole width of the wall you kept folding and unfolding and it was really interesting and and you could just see this big course of events well from a timeline of the world if you think about what was thought to be right and proper and good after world war ii tack on about 50 or 60 years and what's considered acceptable and good and so forth today. In the scheme of the history of the world, do you know how tiny a section that is? I mean, it wouldn't even be a little stretch on a timeline. It'd be like a little point. This tiny amount of time that is allowed for such a huge change and how we think and feel about things. Um, it's crazy. You know, and 
I know our missionary friends have been using all the technology available uh, in getting the word out and 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 uh, reaching people that technology would have never allowed us to reach. But yet, the main technology that drives our high-speed internet really was motivated so people could download porn faster. Crazy. Crazy times. Let's see. A couple things uh, about the text. Um, uh, verses... Um, uh, let's see. This um, there's some references in here and of uh, sacrifice and verse five who slaughter the children in the ravines. Uh, some of the worship of some of these gods was was definitely accompanied by child sacrifice. Um, if all the the sexual debauchery isn't enough, the fact that people would be killing their own children um, in worship, um, just crazy. Verse, um, verse 11, let's pick up. Of whom were you worried and fearful when you lied and did not remember me, nor give me a thought? Was I, not, was I not silent even for a long time so you, you didn't fear me? You know, at least part of the problem was Israel forgot. They forgot. It's like, you know, has it just been so long? Has, has it been... Some commentators see some irony here in, in this verse. Um, in, in verse 11 it says, "Was I, in essence saying, was I so quiet for so long that you've forgotten me and you don't fear me anymore? Well, the irony is he wasn't silent at all. right? All these prophets and kings and judges and the whole other part of the Old Testament is nothing more than a string of ways that God has been trying to talk to his people. You know, obviously he wasn't silent, but just, uh, they forgot. And then in verse 13, basically says, when you cry out, let your collection of idols deliver you. Let them get you out of this mess. Those people that you've been worshiping with the prostitutes in the forest and the people, the idols that you've been, you know, killing your children over, let them help you out if they're so great. Final part of 13 kind of brings it back and says, but, but he who takes refuge in me shall inherit the land and shall possess my holy mountain. And over and over we've seen this concept of the holy mountain representing God's, God's place for his children. Home. This is home for us. 
uh, one day. This concept of forgetting, and I, I, I put a, at least part of the problem is that Israel forgot God. There is value as we continue to read his word and deepen our faith and maintain traditions that keep us from forgetting. You would think that the crucifixion of Jesus and his resurrection three days later would be up front in the minds of all Christians most all of the time. Yet as we all know, one of the last lessons Jesus gave was the reminder to take the bread and the cup what? in remembrance of me. Jesus knew. I mean, how big? A, I mean, you're a Christian. Crucifixion of Jesus arose from the dead three days later. That's Christianity, right? That's pretty much the whole story, or at least the main part of the whole story. But he knew we'd forget even that, or we we certainly wouldn't remember it as much as we should. So he said, "All right, look." You guys are going to lose perspective one day. You're going you're gonna to not give this the place that it needs to have one day. Let me, let me give you something to really remember this by. There are some, um, there are some uh, faith traditions that uh, observe communion every Sunday. Uh, there are some who have a very precise liturgy, order of service, and call to worship a prayer, and a certain readings. And, the, and some people have, in recent generations, have kind of looked down on that as being overly structured and overly religious and, and all that. But But there's some there's some good there. There's some really good there because those that repetition and that tradition can really drive home some of the big points. Why? Because we're stupid and we forget stuff. That's why. And 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 there is there is a a section of our population who are kind of the in-between generation. Their religious ancestors who weren't very long ago grew up in traditions where there wasn't a lot of structure, there wasn't a lot of liturgy, there wasn't a lot of sameness. So to this generation, to some of them, all that's new again. And it feels right to them. They are comforted by that structure and they, it helps them. And so, um, uh, you know, our, our traditions aren't all bad and sometimes they're really uh, very good. Um, I, I'm sure I'm not the only one that has had just a busy, crazy week and show up to church, oh, we're having communion today. And in those few moments as the elements are being distributed, you know, it does kind of hit you. Oh, yeah. This is 
this is really what it's all about. This is really why I'm here. This is really, you know, yeah, you know, and and it's it just puts things in perspective again because we forgot. We might actually make it to the end of fifty-seven. Right? Verse fourteen. And it shall be said, build up, build up, prepare the way, remove every obstacle out of the way, my people. For thus says the high and exalted one who lives forever, whose name is holy. I dwell in a high and lowly place and also with the contrite and lowly of spirit in order to revive the spirit of the lowly and revive the heart of the contrite. What a crazy God, in all the good ways, of course, what a crazy God. He says, I am high and holy and lifted up, but also says, but also I'm with you. I'm with the contrite and the spirit of the lowly. Right? I mean, that's the, that's the whole uniqueness of Christianity. This, this servant who humbled himself to become one of us, among us, to show that, I mean, how much value, I mean, what, what, what more could be said of a God who is, yes, high and holy, whose very name is holy, but says, you know, but I'm also with you. To revive the heart of the contrite. Verse 16. I will not contend forever. Neither will I always be angry. For the spirit would grow faint before me. And the breath of those whom I have made. In other words. Yeah I was angry. But I, I'm not going to always be angry. Because I know that would. Um, I can't just be angry to the. Ones that I love. I. I. Verse 17 talks about this. Because of the iniquity of his unjust gain, I was angry and struck him, and my face was angry. And he went on turning away in the way of his heart. I've seen his way, but I will heal him. I will lead him and restore comfort to him. A God who is not going to be compromised with the holiness but it's always going to be reaching down and say, you know, I still got you. I'm going to I'm going to bring you back. I'm going to fix you. I'm going to heal you. And what does this do? Verse 19, creating the praise of the lips. Peace to him, peace peace to him who is far, to him who is near, I will heal him. Who gets peace? If you're hanging out with God and with a contrite heart and you've been healed by Him and restored by Him, you get peace. Verse 20. But the wicked are like the tossing sea for it cannot be quiet. And its waters toss up refuse and mud. There is no peace, says my God, for 
the wicked. You guys have seen, uh, you know, this uh, this little sign. You see that? In white letters, no, N-O, no Jesus, no peace. But in black letters, for those who know him, K-N-O-W, no Jesus, no peace. You know, sometimes cliches are get to be cliches because they have enough truth in them and they're easy to say and they're easy to remember and they remind you about things. Um, I think this is one of those. In fact, I, I've seen that all the time and, you know, it does have cliche-ishness about it. I know that's not a word. Um, but I never really thought about where it probably came from, but this certainly, this chapter kind of makes it sound like this is where it comes from. There's no peace for the wicked. I also wondered, and I meant to look this up, you know the expression that's used of a person who made a really bad choice and now there's some consequences? And there's a phrase we say that has something to do about where they sleep. What's that phrase? No rest for the weary. Well, I wasn't thinking about that one. She said it. They've made their bed... And now they're going to lie in it, right? And they're really... I'd have to look that up. I'm not sure where that comes from. But look at verse 7. Upon a high and lofty mountain, you've made your bed. You also went up there to offer sacrifice. Verse 8, halfway through. And you've gone up and made your bed wide. You've made an agreement with yourselves and them. You've enjoyed their, you've loved their bed, etc., etc. So I wondered as I was reading this, I wonder if that's where that may have come from. Because where your bed is, that's, I mean, that's where you're hanging out. You've made your bed with the idols. And again, I don't know if this is where that came from, but it certainly was a good memory hook to me to think about. I think when I hear that phrase again, which I'm sure I will, I'm going to I'm going to think about that. Okay. Where has my figurative bed been lately? Right? Where's my bed? All right. The chapter ends, there is no peace for the wicked. It's kind of a Stern reminder. So I guess we'll we'll leave with a stern reminder. Any any comments? Uh, Ladies first. Uh,